This is the Be God's Light podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. And this year in 2024, we're diving into the Old Testament from beginning to end, so to speak. Kind of bounce around from place to place because it is so long. And, you know, actually speaking of the gaps, Ben, there's a 400-year gap between our last podcast and this one. Not in terms of when we did it, but from Genesis 50 to Exodus chapter 1. And a lot happened to the Israelites during that time period. That we, can, we can get a sense of it in the very first verse. So we're in the book of Exodus now, turning the page. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1 says, These are the names of the sons of Israel, that is Jacob, who each went to Egypt with Jacob each with his family. And then the, the sons are named there, and it says in verse 5, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt, so there was Joseph plus 70 of his brothers and their wives and kids and so forth that, were, that came and resettled in Egypt, and that's where they lived. But in verse 6, Exodus 1 verse 6 says, now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became as numerous, so numerous that the land was filled with them. I don't know what numbers you've seen on this. I've seen sometimes, by the time of the Exodus, there were as many as maybe a million or maybe even two million I've seen. Some would say the numbers were much smaller than that. The Bible says somewhere the number 700,000 men plus women and children. I don't remember exactly right off the top of my head, but that 400, there's a lot that happened in the 400 years. Here's, here's what, just the question I have. They were living in a foreign land. They were living among a foreign language. They were living with foreign gods. And yet in a 400 year span, they kept their faith as the Hebrew people as the people who followed one God, not multiple gods, the God Yahweh, their God, how do, how do you think they did this? I mean, they were, they were living somewhere else. They didn't have the printing press. They didn't have Bibles. They didn't, they didn't have the Hebrew scripture that would have been written to that point. The book of Genesis, it actually wasn't written. We think Moses maybe did that. So maybe there were some collections around, but it was word of mouth. 400 years is long. Uh, 400 years, we back up the clock 400 years here, and you know, people were having Thanksgiving meals with, you know, with Native Americans and, and European people coming, and like, that's a really long period of time. You ever give me that any thought? How'd, how'd they keep that faith going and as they grew from 70 people to a million? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... That and I, I could be misreading this in, in numerous ways. I mean, a that that time period they would have had a rich oral tradition. I think a lot of it was probably built their their faithfulness, whatever it, it may have been, a relationship with God, whatever it may have been, uh, would have been um, a byproduct of that oral tradition and remembering the the promises that God had made to their ancestors, but. The other part that I see uh, in the narrative in Exodus is that there seems to in my in my mind in my reading been a departure from that level of faithfulness that we see in Joseph at the end of Genesis 
And part of that, to me, is revealed by even in the midst of what we're going to see here in the future of the plagues uh, being pronounced upon um, the Egyptians, God's pr- protection and provision for the Israelites. There's still the, there's this persistent lack of faithfulness and, and obedience which to me kind of reveals a, a culture or reveals a, a people who, um, who probably have strayed a, a bit. And so even with, you know, if we look at uh, what we believe to be, have been written by Moses, you know, if we look at like Genesis itself um, as a means of communicating to the people of Israel who they are, uh, while that might have been born of an, an oral tradition, I just don't see their hearts having been ripe in it because all we see in Exodus is a people really struggling to entrust themselves to God. Yeah, so that was definitely a tension that was there. I, I would imagine it's the same tension all of us feel all the time that in my case, I'm I'm a Christian and I'm an American, but to be an American Christian is There's a tension built into that, yeah. right? It, yeah. In fact, I was in a Bible study this morning, and we were talking uh, specifically about that, about how we do, we live with this tension. We're specifically talking about uh, our American viewpoint relative to success and how that's not really God's viewpoint relative to success. God, you know, for, for us to be successful, in essence, in our relationship with him, it boils down to faithfulness. Um, it boils down to, to living out the life that he's called us to, a life of humility, a, a life reflective of Jesus's servant heart, um, and how oftentimes we live in this, this tension between God's kingdom ethic and our cultural ethic and how those things oftentimes are at tension, in, in tension with one another. And as we read the scriptures, we engage in our relationship with God, we always have to be asking ourselves. Am I living out God's kingdom ethic, or am I living into my cultural, my existent cultural ethic? And so, yeah, I'd, I'd imagine that the the people, uh, the Israelites, who are at this point um, living uh, among the Egyptians, living uh, in Egypt, that they're wrestling with with similar tensions. Well, the tension also was felt by Egypt and by Egypt's king, the Pharaoh, and it picks it up in verse eight. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, yeah, 400 years later, he came to power in Egypt. Verse 9, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So he had a couple of concerns there that they would outnumber his people, that they would join up with the enemies and they would leave. I mean, they were a great source of the financial well-being of Egypt at that point. This is 400 years after all of the the famine and the problems that were going on back in the day of Joseph. But by then, these million people or however many there were, they, they were essential to the Egyptian economy and to their way of life. So the story picks up in verse 11 So they, the Egyptians, put slave masters over them, the Israelites, to oppress them with forced labor. 
and they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter and harsh with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. There's a bunch of words there. I mean, they were ruthless and harsh. They made their lives bitter. It was a it was a tough time to be there. I mean, they'd relocated and they were living they weren't back in Canaan. They were now in Egypt and the entire nation was there. I mean, because it all came from the Israelites came from the man named Israel, whose name was formerly Jacob, and his whole family was there, and now they grew up as a nation and they had they had lived there for these four centuries, but they still weren't part of the club. They they weren't welcomed into the Egyptian culture. And and that's maybe part two of my earlier question. While they were still struggling maybe with some of their identity as the people of God, they hadn't Mm -hmm. integrated into Egyptian culture and Egyptian language, Egyptian ways of life, Egyptian dress, Egyptian gods and goddesses, and whatever else, you know, that would have made them blend in and be part of the, the group. And so they were, they were still the outsiders, even though there was a lot of them. And I, I don't know what there is for us in that, but it is part of the tension story that caused the Pharaoh to say, oppression is the solution, and we're going to tamp these people down. Why do you think this was um, this, the solution that he came to rather than let's integrate them, let's find a way to, to bring them into our culture and, and make them one of us? I, I don't know. We don't really have an, an answer to that from Scripture, but it's more of a curious one to me that they— they were these distinct people that kept their own tradition, and that made them suspect to the place where they lived. Yeah, I mean, oppression usually is the byproduct of fear. And so the Egyptians clearly mm-hmm. are fearful uh, just with the sheer size of the Israelite community. This is a, the, the Israelites ethnically different, culturally different, um, in some ways existing uh, outside of uh, the Egyptian uh, culture. And so they're fearful uh, of them. And I think recognize that as the, uh, as the Israelites have grown uh, numerically, they could uh, be a, become a, a military threat, you know, that they could side with the enemies of Egypt to overthrow uh, the Egyptians. And the other, the other part of the narrative too, which again, it's a reminder to us is, as those who are uh, seeking to live and out the, the 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 life that God's called us to, that even the, in the midst of the oppression that the Israelites were suffering, you know, we read in verse twelve. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. And so we we see God's constant hand uh, upon His people, caring for His people. Um as they become increasingly fruitful, as God is preparing them really to become the nation state that they become. I would imagine that for Egypt, Egypt was an empire, so to speak, for a really long time. For centuries prior to the Israelites living there, to centuries after that, and they had these these famous... Pharaohs that Ramesses and others that, that we've heard of, and we know, and 
all these things that that were part of of their culture. It was an imposing place. The pyramids. It was it was something to behold. Yeah, they had fear. I mean, as powerful as they were, and as as much as they had done, they had this fear. And of course, being an empire meant you're always being attacked. Somebody's want you know wants to nibble away at what you have. And their their fear was exactly what you said. So it was a fear based oppression. Well, so oppression was one of the solutions. Let's make them work really hard and keep them so worn out, so ruthlessly abused that they don't have time to think about leaving. That didn't work all the way because they kept multiplying a number. So plan B that Pharaoh had was infanticide, the infanticide solution. It's picked up in verse 15 of chapter 1. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, something like that, he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. All right. I, I wasn't a biology major or anything like that. But if you wanted to tamp down the population, wouldn't you eliminate the girls who, you know what I mean? It only takes so many guys. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, and no, I, I know I'm, what you're saying. I'm not really following this yeah, whole story I, well, here. Or think, is, it, is it more about like, we don't want them to raise up soldiers? Yeah, I think that that's a part of it. I also think that there is probably in their mind uh, a means then at that point by uh, keeping the girls is that there's a means ultimately toward integration there into uh, the populace because, you know, the husbands, the future husbands, I, I believe in their mind would have been Egyptian men. And so, yeah, you're, you're losing out on part of your, your uh, workforce. You're also minimizing um, the potential of, uh, of, you know, future warriors coming out of the Israelites and then in the, the the next verse, which I know you're going to get to, but points to that in the midst of uh, the Israelites and that we see this remnant of, of faithfulness and those that are rooted um, and have continued to maintain their relationship with God, most likely born of this oral tradition passed down from generation to generation, which also, I think, paints or points to the responsibility that as, that we have, you know, for those who are parents or even those who are within the, the body of Christ to make sure we're nurturing those younger generations um, toward faithfulness, toward this abiding relationship uh, with Jesus Christ, as we see in verse 17 there. Uh, not to steal your thunder here, no, go but, ahead, go ahead but and take that verse where it that says, whole, that next section yeah, and, and this that. is again, just to emphasize the point you were making earlier in verse 17, where it says the midwives, however, even though they've been called to, to kill these, these baby boys, the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do, they let the boys live, which shows their own resolve to, under the threat ultimately of, of you know, impending death or, or judgment or punishment, to maintain faithfulness to God and continue to preserve life. So the, the Pharaoh had a, an answer to that one too, right? Right. And that is down in verse what we're at 22, after he realized that they're still increasing and becoming more numerous in verse 20, verse 22, then Pharaoh gave order to all his people, not just the midwives, all his people. If you see a Hebrew boy running around, throw him into the Nile River. You, you all have permission. It's not just like 
late-term abortion, so to speak. I mean, like a baby is being born, kill the baby right then. It is flat-out infanticide. You, you see a boy, he's a Hebrew boy, you have permission from the Pharaoh, grab him, drown him, throw him into the river. This guy's desperate. Yeah. And we see a, we see a parallel desperation in Herod, right, in Matthew, where uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, when the, after the, the, uh, the wise men have, have showed up and Pharaoh, you know, goes into Bethlehem and it's kill every boy uh, two and under because he's hoping in the midst of that to, to be able to kill the Christ, uh, the Christ child. Um, Interestingly, the then king. Jesus and his family escaped to That's Egypt. right. Again, God's preservation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, so that's the order that's been given is all the boys, drown them. And I'm, I'm guessing some people did this, and this was happening in places, which leads us to chapter 2. We're going to li- dip into just a little bit here. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile, the very same place that the order was given that boys should be drowned. This seems to me been like a risky move because the order was already out there. Anybody that sees any Hebrew boy you can throw him into the Nile. So what does she do? She puts her Hebrew boy in a basket floating in the, on the edge in the reeds of the River Nile. Th- I mean, you would think that the first thing that you would say is, I'm going to get him as far from the Nile as possible. But she puts him where the most danger is. I don't, I don't know what to make of that other than either she had this tremendous faith or... She was putting him where she knew that the Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, would come because she's observed her. We'll see that here in a moment. Or, or what her reasoning for doing it was, or, or she just didn't think about it. I mean, I, it doesn't really tell me. The, the story doesn't say why she did it. It's just an interesting place to put him where there's the exact place where the order was to throw, to drown Hebrew boys. She puts her Hebrew baby boy it's it's a bold move you know it is yeah his sister it says verse four stood at a distance that's moses sister miriam i'm assuming stood at a distance to see what would happen to him verse five then pharaoh's daughter went down to the nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying. She felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. You talked a moment ago about oral tradition, how they would pass these these stories along verbatim, word for word, person to person, day after day, year after year after year after year. If this were the first time you were hearing the story, you'd think, "Uh uh-oh. She found one of the Hebrew babies on the bank of the Nile, where every Egyptian had been ordered to drown the Hebrew babies, baby boys. 
you, I think that you, the, because I've heard the story so much, I know where it's going to go. But at the, in that moment, if I were telling the story around the fire, I would have paused, you know, for dramatic effect. Like, uh-oh, what's going to happen to this baby boy? Na- unnameless so far. What's going to happen to him? Is this going to be a story of, of death? And it, it sure could have been. Verse 7, then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Brilliant move. Yes, go, the princess answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. So she's nursing now her own son that she had protected and she's getting paid to do so. However, in verse 10, when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, not the Hebrew mom, the Egyptian new mom, Pharaoh's daughter. She named him Moses, saying, which his name means this, I drew him out of the water. What do you make of the story so far? Like this, the, Moses, Moses takes up the next four books of the Bible, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He's significant. So a lot of attention is given to his birth story and, and, and what comes out of him and, and how he grew up in the palace, how he became a person that um, God was going to use in, for the rest of these next four books of the Bible. And really it's important for all of the, all of the scripture for us to understand it. What do you take of the story so far, Ben, of Moses and how he came onto the scene from the very first moments of his life? Yeah, I think, again, as you were talking about, you know, there's like this, this like literary tension in the story from the, from the standpoint that uh, the Pharaoh's daughter recognizes this one of the Hebrew babies and immediately you're like, uh-oh, what's going to happen? Even though she's felt this, this immediate sympathy for him. Um, is she going to just take him out of the basket and toss him uh, in the water to drown? And I think that's one of the things is that, you know, the, the story becomes has become so familiar uh, to us and to many, whether inside of, of you know, Christian or Jewish circles or, or not, the story is, is somewhat known. It's been popularized. There's been multiple movies. And what we miss in it because of its familiarity is we miss that level of tension, which is, I think, intended to communicate God's sovereign intervention in yeah, this, yeah. right? And so when I read through the the story here, uh, the big thing that that constantly uh, comes to mind is that God is sovereignly preserving this child's life for the sake of a future plan. And beyond that, um, even earlier in the story, when we hear that even as they are oppressed, the people of Israel are growing. Um, we see again God's sovereign hand over the nation to care and to preserve the nation, mm-hmm. even as you know the midwives are told to cast the boys into the water and they don't. Um, again, we see this constant uh, provision of God's uh, intervention uh, for the sake of the, the Israelite people and really ultimately for the sake of the coming Messiah. God preserves a people— for the sake of the the coming Messiah, who ultimately is the seed of Abraham's 
uh, promise. And so throughout the Old Testament text itself, one of the big overarching themes is God's preservation of, of his people, whether they're, they're suffering through oppression or God's preserving a righteous remnant, even though the vast majority of the people have turned themselves to injustice, whatever it might be, we constantly see God's intervening hand upon his people to preserve his people. And part of that intervening hand was for Moses to be raised as an Egyptian, an Egyptian, and even as a prince, I mean, becomes the son of Pharaoh's daughter. When, when Stephen in the New Testament, when Stephen is right before he's stoned to death, he gives this big, long speech. And in Acts chapter seven, verse 22, Stephen says, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Back to back, so he was he was trained. I mean, he, he grew up in the palace, and he was, he was educated. He he was given speech classes. He was he was given proper. He he became an Egyptian in every way, but he must have known somewhere along the line that he was drawn out of the water. His name said that, but he must have known the story that he was actually a Hebrew person that was pulled out of the water and maybe is raised as an Egyptian. And it, we're back in the story of Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. It says, one day after Moses had grown up, let me stop to give that context, after Moses had grown up, again to the book of Acts chapter 7, in verse 23, Stephen said, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. So there's a 40-year gap. There's a lot of gaps in these things. We start off with a 400-year gap. Now we have a 40-year gap between verse 10 and verse 11 in Exodus 2. So it was for 40 years that Moses was trained as an Egyptian, developed as an Egyptian. He has no memory of the, the time when he was home with his mother and being nursed. He, he has, other than he's watching his own people, because he probably knew he was a, an Israelite, he's watching his own people be oppressed and so forth. So it says, in the, let me pick that back up in Exodus 2.11, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, probably a common sight, one of his own people, the, the Hebrew. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Oops. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? Now, he's, he's fully Egyptian in dress and every other way at this point. Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid, and he thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. Just like his grandpa, or standing grandpa, when he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. And there, for the next 40 years, he lives his life. He gets married and has kids and becomes a shepherd and spends from year age 40 to 80 living in, in Midian, which is interesting. It was Midianite traders that brought Joseph 
to Egypt. There's so many things <laughs> brought Joseph to Egypt in the first place. Uh, so there's a lot happening here, and this this man's now a fugitive. He, he really is a, kind of a man without a country. He was born a Hebrew. He was raised an Egyptian, and now he spends his his life from forty to age eighty as a Midianite. Uh, there's a lot in the back. I mean, we just pick up the story usually at the burning bush. There's a lot in the backstory of Moses that put him in different situations where a lot of people would just give up. Like, man, I'm done. This is this this is a tough life. Probably thought he'd never see his family again, never see Egypt again. I'm guessing he thought I'm I'm far away from all of this. I'm just taking care of sheep. So, and we're coming to the end of this. What what do you say is a, a lesson that we can draw from Moses' life, the the pre life up to the burning bush and before all that takes place? What what is in there for those first eighty years that would have aided Moses? for this call that would be on him to lead the people out of Egypt and then lead them for the following 40 years from age 80 to 120 to lead them to the precipice of the promised land. What, what is it in these, these first 80 years that stands out to you? Uh, how much time we got left? Uh, yeah, I think that the, the big thing is God's, uh, in some ways, providing for Moses the necessary experience, whether as an Egyptian or as an ethnic Israelite, uh, or even his time uh, in in Midian with his family, because we see his father-in-law is going to come to play a, a role even in his leadership in the future of the Israelite people. It's it's amazing because like all of the proverbial puzzle pieces fit together in his life that God is able to utilize Moses to lead his people out of of Israel. And so he's been trained in the ways of the Egyptians. He's learned, you know, he's he's learned. Um and then and then to boot, he's obviously he's an Israelite. Uh and so he's he's the one set to lead the people of Israel. And then you do uh, not, you know, sometimes we discount it or maybe overlook it, but we also see how obviously his, his time with his father-in-law has equipped him then I think in the future uh, to lead as well. That's really well, that's really well put. Well, we'll pick it up. We'll pick up a story next week. We skip 40 more years and when he has the burning bush experience and we're going to actually then look at his encounter back with Pharaoh will be a new Pharaoh at that point. So we'll take a look at that next time. And folks, if you want to jump in deeper, you can go to our church's website, fishersumc.org. Uh, find the app, click on the Be God's Light link, and that'll take you to more elements in this year-long study of the Old Testament. And if you want to stay up to date with Be God's Light podcasts, we encourage you to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening today, and may God bless.